Welcome to the GDPR Weekly Show, one of the top five GDPR podcasts worldwide. Here is what's coming up in this week's episode. Welcome to episode 192 of the GDPR Weekly Show, the number one GDPR podcast worldwide. And coming up in this week's episode, we have news that spyware has been detected on devices at number 10 Downing Street. We then have news of a data breach at greetings card site Funky Pigeon, which stopped sales on the site. And indeed, as we check today as we go to broadcast, the site is still unable to accept new orders. We then move to the Isle of Man, and Manx Chair has been penalised for GDPR breaches. And then back to the UK was controversy over the Shiseido data breach, which we first mentioned here last week on the GDPR Weekly Show. We then have news that UK businesses are being urged to be cautious when using the cybersecurity tool provided by UK police. We then travel to France, where CNIL has introduced new fast-track processing for GDPR breaches. And then we move to Hong Kong, where Hong Kong has issued a report following a data breach at Nikkei Incorporated. We then travel to the USA, where Lapsus have attacked T-Mobile. And remaining in the USA, we have news of a data breach at Bob Red's Mills Food Supplies. We then travelled in Newark, where law firm Macasa and English has had a data breach. And then we moved to Pennsylvania, where Wawa are suing MasterCard over data breach penalties. We then returned to Europe and look at some GDPR implementation guidance issued by the European Data Protection Board, the EDPB. And then finally this week, we have a comparison between GDPR and the new EU AI Act aimed at artificial intelligence applications. So as always, a mixed range of articles for you this week. We hope you find the information in the articles useful and informative. We always really value your feedback. So if you have any feedback for us, please do email us at feedback at gdprweeklyshow.com. We do read every single piece of feedback we receive, but unfortunately due to the volume of feedback, it's not always possible for us to respond to each piece of feedback individually. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. 10 Downing Street has been the victim of a major security breach after powerful spyware linked to the United Arab Emirates was found on a device at the Prime Minister's premises. The spyware, which could have allowed the operator to carry out 24-hour surveillance of messages and calls, was found on a device on Number 10's network. This incident occurred on July the 7th, 2020, and it had just become public after the Foreign Office admitted to issues between July 2020 and June 2021 on at least five separate occasions. The Israeli Pegasus spyware is thought to have been linked to hackers in the United Arab Emirates as well as India, Cyprus and Jordan. The spyware was found on several Downing Street phones, including a device belonging to the Prime Minister, Boris Johnson. However, in a statement this week, Britain's National Cyber Security Centre said it hadn't been able to locate the device in question and the nature of the information stolen couldn't be determined. In a separate incident in 2021, Boris Johnson changed his phone when it emerged his mobile number had been on the internet for more than a decade. Earlier this year, British businesses were warned to bolster their digital defences after malicious cyber incidents targeted Ukraine. The National Cyber Security Centre, the NCSC, has updated its guidance to UK firms and groups and said it was investigating recent reports of malicious cyber incidents involving Ukraine. The Centre's Director of Operations, Paul Chidester, said the NCSC is committed to raising awareness of evolving cyber threats and presenting actionable steps to mitigate them. While we are unaware of any specific cyber threats to UK organisations in relation to events in Ukraine, we are monitoring the situation closely and it's vital that organisations follow the guidance to ensure they are resilient. Over several years, we've observed a pattern of malicious Russian behaviour in cyberspace. Last week's incidents in Ukraine bear the hallmarks of similar Russian activity we have observed before. 
Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. Online greetings chart business Funky Pigeon has stopped taking orders after it was hit by a cyber attack. Funky Pigeon became aware of the incident last Thursday and said it informed relevant regulators about the breach. Funky Pigeon, which is owned by WH Smith, the well-known high street news agent, said that it had taken the systems offline as a precaution and is therefore unable to fulfil any orders. The company has also written to all customers from the past 12 months to let them know about the incident, though it said it did not believe that any account passwords had been compromised. As soon as we discovered the incident last Thursday, we launched a forensic investigation led by external experts to understand the incident and whether there was been any impact on customer data, Funky Pigeon said in a statement. We are currently investigating the extent to which personal data, specifically names, addresses, email addresses and personalised card and gift designs, has been accessed. We take the security of customer data extremely seriously and we temporarily suspended any new orders via our website. The attack came just a couple of weeks after a similar incident suffered by the works, which was also forced to shut down some parts of its operation, and indeed we brought that to you in a previous episode of the GDV Weekly Show. If we receive any update on this from Funky Pigeon, or indeed from the ICO, we will of course bring it to you in the next available episode of the GDV Weekly Show. Do you ever wish there was a simple way to get to grips with GDPR? Well, now there is. Our best-selling book, GDPR Made Simple, is available on Amazon for just £7.99. It's a short, concise guide to all you need to know about UK GDPR. It's thoroughly recommended for everyone, whatever your level of experience with GDPR. So that's GDPR Made Simple on Amazon right now. To the Isle of Man now, and specifically Manx Care. One patient's medical record was emailed to more than 2,200 recipients. Manx Care has failed to comply with data protection laws, resulting in a number of data breaches over the last six months. There has been the findings of the Isle of Man's information commissioner, who has issued an enforcement list to the healthcare provider. The report says Manx Care puts the personal data and special category data of its patients at risk by not complying with GDPR. The information commissioner's findings say damage and distress to patients is likely due to a lack of appropriate technical and organisational security. The organisation is required to compile a total report for the commissioner, but its most recent submission shows there's been little progress in ensuring data is secure. The enforcement notice that it remains care four months to comply with GDPR, including bringing in measures to ensure data sent in email attachments is secure. The board was also given six weeks to inform the commissioner how it intends to put these in place and a timeline for doing so. Failure to comply with the enforcement notice could result in a fixed penalty with a maximum fine of £1 million. Ainsterrors issues a statement. It says, in view of enforcement action which relates to a period from April to December 2021, Mainster and the Mainster Board recognise significant work is necessary to remediate the information government's risks and challenges Mainster currently faces, and we're committed to getting this right moving forward. We can confirm that a program of work has commenced overseen by the Mainster Board and in conjunction with the Cabinet Office Transformation Programme to make all the necessary improvements identified within the external review undertaken by KPMG as part of the Transformation Programme. In last week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, we brought you news of a data breach at Shiseido, and this week it's been alleged that management at the cosmetics firm Shiseido were allegedly aware of the data breach on company systems weeks before officially reporting it to the ICO, according to former employees. The ICO said that the Japanese cosmetics giant first reported an incident on 11th of April, as per reporting rules that require a company to report any instance to the ICO no later than 72 hours after discovery. However, two former Shiseido employees now say that the company had been made aware of the data breach as early as the 17th of March, following multiple reports from employees having their identities stolen. One of the victims, former business manager for Shiseido's subsidiary Nars Cosmetics, Faye Hopping, detailed how she became aware of her personal details, including a scan of her photo, being used to set up a fraudulent company in her name. 
She said, my postman intercepted a letter from Tumpney's house towards the end of March, which went to my old property. Luckily he did, or I would have been completely unaware that Tumpney had established in my name as the director. The company was set up for 14th of March 2022, so I'm not sure when my details would have been breached. After emailing countless people within Shiseido, Hopping was only formally contacted by the company on 19th of April with an offer to provide a 12 months of experience credit and web monitoring services. Hopping described the offer as a bit late, considering most of us were advised to join Experian and CFAS when we reported the incident to the police. In the same correspondence dated 19th of April, Shiseido denied responsibility for the data breach, stating that there's no evidence that the information has come to Shiseido. This is despite the list of victims reportedly including hundreds of former and current employees of Shiseido and its subsidiary brands. The company has refused to accept liability as a breach could come from a third party or even HM Revenue and Customs. It seems that many of the details are being used to set up false companies at Company's House, because having received a letter from Company's House in the first week of March congratulating them on becoming a company director, the former employee who wishes to remain anonymous promptly notified Action Fraud. However, they didn't find out about the breach until the 7th of April, when a former co-worker mentioned that they had attended a Teams Q&A meeting that day about a possible data breach. She, the co-worker, was told the company are not accepting liability and therefore had no intention of contacting former colleagues. I also found out they had sent an email on the 17th of March, so they were aware of the breach at this point, the former employee said. I've since sent four emails to Shiseido's HR and legal departments, but have yet to have a response. They sent out a scripted email on Thursday, 14th of April, from a new email address they set up specifically for the data breach, and I forwarded all emails I'd previously sent to this email address, but I've still yet to hear back from them. I've sent the subject access request and formal complaint to them, but they haven't responded. We've reached out to Shiseido for a comment, but at the time during the broadcast, we've not heard from them. If we do hear from them, we will of course bring you their response in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. A rather worrying story now for anyone who's using the vulnerability scanning and network monitoring tool issued by the UK police. An independent cybersecurity researcher has dissected a prevalent vulnerability scanning and network monitoring tool used by the UK police and labelled it as woefully unsecured. The police cyber alarm tool was launched in November 2020 at no cost to businesses who wish to use it. The Home Office funded tool aimed to gather valuable data on the suspicious threats targeting business and feed that information into police intelligence. A long line of security vulnerabilities was discovered by information security consultant Paul Moore over the course of an 18-month analysis of both the pre-release and final production version of the police cyber alarm tool. Among the many vulnerabilities was a leakage of passwords in plain text. Moore didn't detail what kind of passwords could be fetched, but claimed Pervade, the software's developer, made the situation worse after he originally highlighted security issues back when police cyber alarm launched in 2020. Moore first raised the issue of Pervade implementing the SHA-256 hashing algorithm for passwords in 2020, which he said is not secure or appropriate for password storage. Some believe SHA-256 and also SHA-512 are not secure enough and the encryption can be brute-forced with modern hardware. Since making the first report, Moore recently observed that a logic flaw was present in the index.php file that allows plain text passwords to be sent to and returned from the software's central API. The central API is also unauthenticated, Moore said, which could allow an attacker to make a request using the data selector's ID and it will return information including names, email addresses, telephone numbers, what IP addresses the tool scans, as well as the plain text passwords. 
The flaw also presents the potential for an attacker to intercept the tool's vulnerability reports. If the tool found a vulnerability, or even a zero-day exploit, and returned it to the business in the form of a report, an attacker could feasibly set the report's target email address to be their own. Intercepting such reports could prevent the business, organisation and police from gathering important data on threats that could ultimately be used to launch further attacks. Other security issues with police cyber alarm included poorly implemented cryptography in other areas of the app, unsecured session tokens and password authentication not being timing safe, amongst others. Moore said the tool was not only highly unsecured, but the actions of response from Pervade were incompetent. Moore claimed that both the MPCC and Pervade were defensive dismissive when he originally came to disclose his finding in 2020, but in recent years with the MPCC, Moore said the organisation made every effort to validate and rectify the issues and even revoke member access to the aforementioned police cyber alarm area within an hour of their first call. We've had the following response from the MPCC's National Cyber Crime Programme. The police cyber alarm team was contacted by a security consultant relating to potential vulnerabilities within the police cyber alarm system. The team was engaged with the individual directly and facilitated a meeting between him and Crest Star, an NCSC-approved Czech cybersecurity company, who are fully investigating. As with all security concerns, we thank them to our attention. We have switched off member access to one area of police cyber alarm as a precaution, whilst we investigate further. We are confident that no breaches has occurred and member organisations and data is secure. We will continue to ensure the security system by working with the provider and our partners to maintain our own robust internal testing process, as well as with Crestar and NCSC-approved Czech independent cybersecurity companies. The National Cybersecurity Centre said it's aware of the research, but the Cybersecurity Authority has not announced any proposed action in response, since its role is to provide expert advice rather than take action on security systems by other organisations. In the meantime, Moore suggests all organisations uninstall police cyberware and change their passwords, adding that the risk of using the software is higher now than when it was first launched. We will keep a close eye on this story, and if we get any further responses from the MPDC, we will talk to to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. To France now, and a recent change to the law in France will allow their DPA, CNIL, to impose penalties at a minor level with reduced administration. The new simplified sanction procedure has been introduced at a time when the number of data protection complaints in France have been growing. Last year alone, more than 14,000 complaints were made to CNIL, citing alleged breaches of GDPR. The CNIL president will be responsible for triaging complaints. If they decide that complaints should be handled in accordance with a simplified sanction procedure, this will not only affect the way the complaint is handled, but impact the nature and size of sanctions the authority can impose if it subsequently finds the business concerned responsible for non-compliance. In a statement, CNIL said, The simplified sanction procedure follows the same steps as the ordinary sanction procedure, for deadlines, adversarial procedures, etc., but its implementation procedures are simplified. The president of the restricted formation, i.e. CNIL, or a member he designates decides alone and no public hearing is organised unless the organisation subject to the procedure requests a public hearing. The penalties that may be imposed in this context are limited to the tool to order, a fine of up to €20,000 and an injunction with penalty capped at €100 per day of delay. These sanctions cannot be made public. It's an interesting move by CNIL to speed up the process of dealing with alleged breach GPR, and it'll be interesting to see whether other DPAs across Europe, and indeed our own DPA in the UK, the ICO, adopts a similar procedure. We will keep an eye on this, of course, and bring you any updates right here on the GDPR Weekly Show. Do you ever wish there was a simple way to get to grips with GDPR? Well, now there is. 
Our best-selling book, GDPR Made Simple, is available on Amazon for just £7.99. It's a short, concise guide to all you need to know about UK GDPR. It's thoroughly recommended for everyone, whatever your level of experience with GDPR. So that's GDPR Made Simple on Amazon right now. It's always useful to consider post-mortems of data breaches, what went right, what went wrong. And this week there's been a documented post-mortem of a data breach at Nikkei China, Hong Kong Limited, in a report published by the Office of the Privacy Commissioner in Hong Kong on 17th of February 2022. Give a bit of background on this incident, a hacker obtained the password of an email account that was created by Nikkei China to communicate with customers. The hacker then set up a forwarding function for this email account and five other email accounts that all shared the same password, automatically forwarding all the incoming emails to those email addresses to two unknown email addresses apparently belonging to the hacker. Between October 2020 and February 2021, the hacker managed to forward emails sent by, to Nikkei China by 1,644 customers, 650 Hong Kong, 904 overseas. The personal data leaked through the emails included customers' names, email addresses, company names, job titles, telephone numbers and credit card information. Nikkei China had information management regulations which set out a framework for overall security management for company-owned information. All Nikkei China staff were verbally instructed to thoroughly study the content of this policy, which was held in a shared folder accessible to all staff members. There was also a set of security management that applied to all group companies, which included a password policy. The alarm was raised on the 1st of March this year when a staff member of Nikkei China received a delivery failure error in respect of an email to an unknown and suspicious email address. Internal investigation identified that an unauthorised external account had control of six email accounts of Nikkei China, and the controller had surreptitiously forwarded about 16,860 emails over a five-month period. Nikkei China notified the data breach to Hong Kong Privacy Commissioner on the 17th of March 2021 and made a public announcement on the same day. The investigation report issued by the Privacy Commissioner highlights some common features and failings of data breach incidents, and that's why we're bringing it to you here in this episode of GDPR Weekly Show. The intrusion lasted for at least four months before it was discovered. Now, this might seem a long time, but this is a feature of many hacking. Once the intruders within the walls of your IT system, it can be possible to remain undetected for quite some time. It takes an eventual odd occurrence to trigger action. In Nikkei China's case, it was a delivery failure message on an email and an alert employee who escalated the report for further investigation. There were 41 email accounts established at the time of the incident, 24 of which belonged to former staff members and were no longer in use. Now, the important point here is that Nikkei China had no system in place to retire and close redundant email accounts of people who no longer worked with Nikkei China. And that's quite common in our instance that people do, or companies rather, do not have a procedure set up in place to delete email accounts when someone leaves your company. Now, of course, you might want to keep those email accounts for a short period of time because there might be queries from customer suppliers to which the answers lie within those emails. But why keep them longer than that? Why keep that risk? So an action for everyone this week, I think, is to go through their email accounts and make sure any old employees who may have long since left organization are deleted from the system. The other issue here, of course, was that the hacked email accounts all used the same password. In fact, this was the default password set by the email service provider when the accounts were created. The password formulation consisted of a short series of numbers, neither long nor complex. Nite China now either required its staff to change the default password, nor required them to change the password of their email accounts periodically. Weak passwords are more likely to be susceptible to brute force or phishing attacks and represent a material vulnerability in IT security, the Commissioner said. 
The web-based email service used by Nikkei China did not support multi-factor authentication. This is now a standard practice to ensure that persons using such a service are identified by different Nonetheless, many older links do not in MFA. This type of issue would be picked up on third-party inspection of user IT systems, but Nikkei China did not conduct the inspection of the regulation of its email system. And again, this is one of the reasons, particularly for larger customers, but for smaller customers too, we always recommend the implementation of annual audit to, for your GDPR policy procedures and also for what's actually happening on the ground. Having policy procedures is one thing. What your staff is actually doing can be something quite. So that annual audit is important and it's a service that we provide right here at Insurity, the pretty show. So if you need any information, please do contact us this article. So how did Nikkei China respond to this? Well, the Information Commissioner in Hong Kong says that the company Nikkei China responded well. Nikkei China changed the passwords on the affected accounts and disabled the forwarding function on the 1st of March 21, the same day the incident discovered. The next day, all account passwords across the city were changed. The data breach was notified to the Privacy Commission on the 17th of March 2021. The Commissioner said this was reasonably prompt, given that Hong Kong is a jurisdiction that has no mandatory data protection obligation. Nikkei Incorporated, the parent company Nikkei China, announced the data breach on its website on the same day, and Nikkei China also sent emails to affected customers and informed relevant credit card issuers. Nikkei China migrated the email to a cloud-based service email provider, which offered strong password security and multi-factor authentication. Other technical improvements were made to information security systems. In addition, Nikkei China updated its information management regulations and required silent acknowledgement from its employees of having read and provisioned. Critically, Nikkei China also engaged external professionals to conduct training sessions on infrastructure and committed to undertake training on your basis. Again, that's something we strongly recommend. We recommend that all of you have EPR update training once and again as a service we provide. So in summing up, the Privacy Commissioner unsurprisingly found that Nikkei China had failed to take all practical security measures to protect the personal data it held. This is a requirement of data protection principles in the Personal Data Privacy Ordinance, which applies in Hong Kong. This is based on findings of the following deficiencies, weak password management, retention of obsolete accounts, lack of security controls for remote access to mail systems, and inadequate security controls on all of its The Privacy Commissioner issued an enforcement notice for certain prescribed steps to be taken, which, based on its report, Nikkei China was attending to already. The terms of enforcement notice inevitably focus on concrete remedial steps to be taken to correct the data breach. Recommendations, however, are a good indication of policy steps the Privacy Commissioner hopes that all businesses will adopt. These are some of the recommendations proposed by the Privacy Report. Establish a Privacy Management Programme, appoint a Data Protection Officer, DPO, adopt a policy on email communications, and install a privacy-friendly culture in the workplace. All things, I have to say, that we here at Insurity GDPR Weekly Show would very, very strongly support. So, some questions for you to go away and think about this week to this article. Do you have a good password management? Do you have a system to process and remove all obsolete email account employees? And indeed, maybe usernames and passwords into other of your internal system, which were used by that employee who's now left. So why are you keeping them? And finally, of course, and something we mentioned frequently in the show, have you implemented multi-factor authentication for remote access? Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. Back in episodes 188 and 189 of the TGPL Weekly Show, we brought in news of activities from the Lapsus Hacking Group. It appears this week that the Lapsus Hacking Group has claimed another victim, US telecom giant T-Mobile. T-Mobile's latest security incident, the seventh data breach in the past four years, 
was first revealed by security journalist Brian Trebs, who obtained a week's worth of private chat messages between the core members of Lapsus, a hacking and extortion group that gained notoriety in recent months after targeting tech giants such as NVIDIA, Ubisoft and Okla. The messages obtained by Krebs were sent in a private telegram channel during the week leading up to the arrest of the game's most actives in March. At least two Lapsus members, a 16-year-old and a 17-year-old, were subsequently charged with multiple cyber offences. The messages showed that Lapsus had access to T-Mobile's network by compromising employee accounts, either by buying the credentials or through social engineering. This gave Lapsus access to T-Mobile's internal tools, including Atlas, used for managing customer accounts, which the hackers used in an attempt to find T-Mobile accounts associated with the FBI and the US Department of Defense, but were blocked as the access in additional checks. Through this employee account access, the hackers were in a position to carry out SIM swap attacks, where hackers reassign a target cell phone number to the device under their control, which then allows for the interception of phone calls and text messages to be used to further break into victims' accounts and, of course, to also obtain authentication codes for two-factor authentication. T-Mobile did not respond to multiple requests for comment, but said that no customer or government information was accessed during the incident. If we do receive any update on this from T-Mobile, we will, of course, bring it to you in the next available episode of the Digital Weekly Show. Remaining in America, and the company behind the popular American brand of whole grain foods has notified its online customers that their personal data may have been exposed in a recent cyber attack. Bob's Red Mill Natural Foods issued a data breach notice on April 15th after learning it had fallen victim to a data scraping cyber attack that began two months ago. We recently learned that between February 23rd and March 1st, 2022, malicious software was used to scrape purchase-related information entered into our website said the company, which is headquartered in Milwaukee, Oregon. The company said that data entered onto its website is usually sent directly to the company's payment processor via secure protocols. However, unidentified cyber attackers use malicious software to divert the information. We do not believe that any of our physical in-person point-of-sale terminals have been impacted, or that purchases made outside of February 21st to March the first window have been impacted, said Bob Spedmir. An investigation into the incident by the company initially found no evidence that any information had been downloaded or exfiltrated from the website and used in the commission of fraud, but that changed in March. On March 22nd, we received a call from a customer who indicated that they'd incurred a fraudulent charge, stated Bob's Red Mill in April. We received a number of similar reports this month. The company said that while it does not know if these fraudulent charges are related to the data scraping incident, it now appears that payment card and other information may have been acquired by cybercriminals. Data that may have been exposed in attack includes online customers' payment card information, billing and shipping addresses, email addresses, phone numbers and purchase. The company said that no information has been found to indicate that any social security numbers, dates of birth, driver's license numbers or other government-issued ID numbers had been exposed in the attack. Bob's Red Mill's Chief Operating Officer Bill Lozier said that the company will learn from the incident and use the information uncovered during our investigation to further bolster our data security incident response investigation. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Remaining in America and over to New Jersey now, where Newark law firm Matata and English experienced the data breach. Matata and English's executive committee confirmed the firm recently became aware of a network security incident that temporarily impacted the availability of our computer systems. Upon discovering the incident, we took proactive measures to contain the incident and initiated an investigation. Law enforcement has also been notified, the executive said. The statement went on to say that the firm was able to restore our key systems in short order, including access to email. Our ability to perform services to our clients was not significantly impacted. If we have any update on this incident, we will, of course, bring to you in the next episode of the Show. 
Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. To Pennsylvania now, and Pennsylvania-based convenience store and gas station chain Wawa is seeking return of penalties it paid to MasterCard following a 2019 data breach customer payment security systems. In December 2019, Wawa CEO Chris Gazins announced that malware that steals credit card information and potentially be operating at Wawa's 840 locations across Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, Washington DC and Florida since March that year. Last year, Wawa turned over $10.7 million to the payment card network international security instant. In a suit filed on Monday in federal court in New York, Wawa claimed that the penalties it paid were unlawful. The company alleges that the fines issued by its credit card bank, Bank of America, to Wawa violated MasterCard's standards for customer-related disputes and basic principles of fairness, equity, and conscience. According to the suit, MasterCard violated its standards by imposing an unfair penalty per account on the accounts. Wawa claims MasterCard's assessment of the fine was invalid because it was not based on actual losses or expenses suffered by MasterCard or its insurers due to the card skimming system. MasterCard fined Bank of America $17.8 million over the late breach last August, claiming that more than 5 million crowd holders had been affected by the incident. The penalty was later reduced to $10.7 million US dollars after Bank of America appealed against it, although MasterCard denied any assessment of the fine. Wawa claimed that it made the payments to Bank of America under a duress and is now demanding that MasterCard pays its $32 million in damages. The company alleges there is no evidence for MasterCard to determine that Bank of America was responsible for the breach. Wawa stated in a lawsuit that the program completed in March 2020 to replace magnetic stripe card readers on its gas pumps with chip readers had been delayed by circumstances beyond its control. In September 2021, Wawa agreed to pay $9 million in cash and gift cards to settle a class action lawsuit filed against it over the breach. The company also agreed to spend $35 million upgrading its own cybersecurity. Do you ever wish there was a simple way to get to grips with GDPR? Well, now there is. Our best-selling book, GDPR Made Simple, is available on Amazon for just £7.99. It's a short, concise guide to all you need to know about UK GDPR, it's thoroughly recommended for everyone, whatever your level of experience with GDPR. So that's GDPR Made Simple on Amazon right now. Back to Europe now, and periodically the European Data Protection Board issues guidelines on how it feels GDPR should be interpreted in different circumstances. And it's now released the latest batch of those guidelines, and so we thought we'd have a quick look at them here. Guideline 01 2020 concerns the processing of personal data in the context of connected vehicles and mobility-related applications. This guideline deals with the ongoing digitalisation of vehicles and is aimed at car manufacturers and companies involved in the digitalisation of vehicles. Increasingly, sensors and networked onboard devices have been installed that can collect and record driving habits, places visited, and possibly even the driver's eye move, pulse, or biometric data. These data are unambiguously capable of identifying an actual person. The processing operations therefore require a legal basis under Article 6 of GDPR in order not to be unlawful. The selection of data by law enforcement authorities to detect speeding or other violations is governed by Article 10 of GDPR. The technologies used should be configured in such a way that the obligation to make data protection friendly default settings pursuant to Article 25 is complied with. Prior to the processing of personal data, the data subject is informed in a transparent and comprehensible manner in accordance with Article 13 of GDPR. The next one, Guideline 09 of 2020, the relevant and reasoned objection within the meaning of Regulation EU 2016-79. Guideline 09 of 2020 sets out what requirements are for an authoritative and reasoned objection within the meaning of EU Regulation 
2016-679 in order for a supervisory authority to be able to object to the lead supervisory authority to operation procedures. Article 4, number 24 of GDPR led to ambiguity as to what exactly constitutes a relevant and reasoned objection. A definition was necessary to guarantee consistent application by supervisory authorities. According to the EPB, an objection is relevant if there is a direct link between the objection and the content of the draft decision in question. In particular, the objection must relate either to whether there is a breach of GDPR or whether the intended measure against the control or process has complied with GDPR. An objection is well founded if it contains clarification and arguments as to why an amendment of the decision is proposed. It must also explain how the amendment would lead to a different conclusion as to whether there was a breach of GDPR or whether there wasn't. We then move on to Guideline 08 of 2020, the targeting of social media users. This guideline addresses the targeting services provided by the platform operator to target users of social media and is addressed to platform operators and natural or legal persons, the targeters, who use these targeting services for advertising purposes. Targeting services enable natural or legal persons to send specific messages to social media users in order to promote commercial, political or other interests. The mechanism used to target social media users and the underlying process activities that enable targeting can pose significant risks. Both consent pursuant to Article 6 or legitimate interest pursuant to Article 6 play a greater role as a legal basis. Article 6 cannot be used as a legal basis for online advertising merely because this advertising indirectly financially services. The ECJ ruled that processing can only be based on legitimate interest if three cumulative conditions are met, i.e. all three have been met, not either or. And those three conditions are legitimate interest pursued by the controller or by the third party or parties in the data closed, the processing of personal data is necessary to achieve the legitimate interest, and no overriding of the fundamental rights and freedom in the subject. The display of online betting advertisements on social media may fall within the scope of Article 22 of GDPR, so that explicit consent becomes necessary. The personal data must be collected for specified, explicit and legitimate purposes pursuant to Article 5. The transparency obligations from Article 12 to 14 of GDPR and the right to information towards Article 15 of GDPR must be observed. We turn now to Guideline 02 of 2021, which deals with virtual voice assistants and addresses companies that have already integrated these virtual voice assistants into products or want to integrate them. Due to the extensive integration of virtual voice assistants, they have access to intimate information that could affect individuals' data protection and privacy rights if not operated properly. For the commissioning and consequently the lawful posting of personal data, consent under Article 6 is required. Furthermore, the transparency requirements of GDPR pursuant to Article 5, Paragraph 1, Subparagraph A, Article 12 and 13 of GDPR must be complied with, and the specification of a clear purpose of use is required to all in order to comply with the provision of Article 5, Paragraph 1 of GDPR. In order to use the voice data to identify users, biometric data within the meaning of Article 4, Paragraph 14 of GDPR must be processed, for which only explicit consent of the data subject can be considered. For the processing of personal data of children, Article 8, Paragraph 1 of GDPR must be complied with if the legal basis for this arrangement is consent. Virtual voice assistant providers must also ensure that all user data, including data posted on the basis of legitimate interests of the virtual voice assistant providers, can be deleted at the request of the user in accordance with Article 17 of GDPR. The EDPB has also issued guidance on the notions of controller and processor as far as GDPR is concerned. These play a crucial role in the application of GDPR as they determine who is responsible for compliance with the various data protection rules and how data subjects can exercise their rights in practice. The controller is defined in Article 4, Number 7 of GDPR, the processor in Article 4, Number 8 of GDPR. Decisions on non-essential means can be left to the processor. 
The controller must nevertheless specify certain elements in the process of agreement, such as security requirement. For example, an instruction take all measures required under Article 32 of GDPR. The provisions of Article 28 of GDPR must always be observed. And finally, we have Guideline 10 of 2020, which looks at the limitation of Article 23 of GDPR. This guideline deals with Article 23 of GDPR, which allows Member States to restrict obligations and rights under Articles 12 to 22 and Article 34, as well as Article 5, through legislation, and is thus directly addressed to the Member States of the EU. The protection of individuals from posting their personal data is a fundamental right. Article 16 of TFEU requires EU Member States to adopt provisions for the protection of individuals with regard to posting their personal data. Article 23 of GDPR is to be interpreted against this background. In April 2021, the European Union took a decisive first step in the direction of regulating lawful, safe and trustworthy artificial intelligence technologies by publishing the so-called AI Act, officially known as the Proposal for a Regulation Laying Down Harmonised Rules on Artificial Intelligence. The AI Act represents a critical opportunity for the EU to ensure that AI systems operating in the single market respect the EU's fundamental rights and values. Some anticipate that the AI Act may lead the European Union to once again become the trendsetter on the international scene, similar to what happened with regards to GDPR, which is now accepted as being a platinum standard for data protection worldwide. There are a number of common features between the AI Act and GDPR. This did not come as a surprise. On the one hand, the right to protection of personal data is considered a fundamental right in the legal framework by both Articles of the Treaty on the Function of the European Union and Article 8 of the EU's Charter of Fundamental Rights. On the other hand, data is to AI what fuel is to an engine. We all know that training AI systems requires a massive amount of data, thus rendering data protection laws relevant when regulating the new family of technologies. So let's look at some of these common points between the AI Act and GDPR. First of all, let's look at scope. We're looking at Article 2 of the AI Act. The first feature borrowed from GDPR is in fact the extensive scope of the application well beyond European borders. Indeed, three countries are subject will be bound by these provisions not only use the AI systems located within the territory of a member state, but also providers that place AI systems on the EU market or put them into service in the EU, irrespective of whether they are established in the EU. Further, Third country providers and used of AI systems will fall within the scope of application if the output generated by such systems is used in the EU. Turning then to a risk-based approach, a key point of GDPR is the innovative risk-based approach which requires the data controllers to consider the nature, scope and context of purposes of processing as well as the risk for data subjects, rights and freedoms in order to implement technical and organisational measures compliant with GDPR. In other words, the controller is responsible for detecting specific issues of processing activities carried out and then for addressing them with whatever means it deems appropriate. The AI Act adopts a similar risk-based approach that besides serving compliance purposes it also drives the characterisation of AI systems into four different families based on the degree of risk posed to individuals' fundamental rights and freedoms. The risk ladder is the following. Unacceptable risk AI systems are expressly prohibited. High risk AI systems are subject to mandatory requirements and an ex affirmative assessment. Limited risk AI systems are only subject to specific transparency obligations with minimal risk AI systems that fall outside the scope of regulations which can be fully used. Then if we look at accountability, the GDPR provides for the data controller to be responsible for and be able to demonstrate compliance with the safeguarding principles relating to the process of personal data. The AI Act, although it doesn't specifically mention accountability principle, extends the principle to all operators involved in the supply chain. For instance, Chapter 3 of the AI Act, which deals with enforcement, places horizontal obligations on providers of high-risk AI systems 
but also establishes proportionate obligations for users and other players within the AI value chain, such as importers, distributors, authorised representatives. If we turn then to risk management, Article 9 of the AI Act regulates the establishment, implementation and documentation of a risk management system, which needs to be properly managed through the entire life cycle of high-risk AI technologies. This mechanism is described as a continuous process, aimed at identifying foreseeable risks of high-risk AI systems, as well as other possible threats arising from post-market mean of data, and suitable measures to manage all of those risks. Such risk management system is aligned with the data protection impact assessment provided for in Article 35 of GDPR. If we turn then to sanctions, the GDPR and AI Act provide for similar types of administrative fees. First, for minor infringements, fines can be imposed up to €10 million Euros, or 2% of the annual global turnover for the preceding financial year, whichever is higher. Such infringements include, for example, for GDPR, violating the principle of privacy by design and by default, and for the AI Act, for providing incorrect, incomplete or misleading information to notify bodies and authorities. Fines can then be raised to €20 million Euros, or 4% of the total annual turnover preceding financial year for breaching other provisions of the GDPR, such as processing principles and data service rights, or for other violations of the AI Act that do not fall within the lower level of fines. Finally, the AI Act adds another and more severe layer of fines to €30 million, Euros, or 6% of the total annual turnover in financial year, whichever is higher, for non-compliance with prohibited AI practices or the quality requirements set out for high-risk AI systems. So then if we turn to oversight, as for monitoring and enforcement, both regulations identify a similar oversight mechanism it relies on cooperation of European and national authorities in order to ensure consistent and effective application of the regulation. On the European level, Article 68 of GDPR established the EDPB, the European Data Protection Board, which comprises the heads of the national supervisory authorities and of the European Data Protection Supervisor. In addition, the European Commission has the right to participate in its activities. Following the same path, Articles 56 and 57 of the AI Act lay the foundations for the European Artificial Intelligence Board, a new body, similar to EDPB, that comprises representatives from member states and EDPS. In this case, however, the Commission enjoys a more prominent role by chairing the board, convening the meetings and preparing the agenda. On a national level, Article 51 of GDPR prompts member states to identify one or more supervisory authorities they will be responsible for monitoring data protection regulations within their country. In the same way, Article 59 of the AI Act requires each member state to establish or designate national competent authorities for the purpose of guaranteeing proper application of the AI Act. In both cases, such authorities are subject to strict requirements of independence, objectivity and impartiality, and it's furthermore up to each member state to provide their authorities with the adequate financial, technical and human resources to fulfil their tasks. Scholars and lawyers are divided as to whether the authorities should be identified as national competent authorities. The EDPB, for instance, in their joint opinion 05-2021, support extending the function to national data protection authorities, the DPAs, would be the ICO in the case of the UK. Such solutions can be justified for the following main reasons. Firstly, these authorities already exist, so no additional trust is necessary to put in place a new regulatory body. Secondly, since data protection and artificial intelligence are deeply intertwined, granting the supervisory role to a single subject will ensure uniform and effective action in both fields. By contrast, establishing a new body may lead to coordination problems. And thirdly, as the AI Act borrows numerous features from GDPR, 
the national DPAs would already be accustomed to the approaches and tools that are intended to be used. So in summary, whether the AI Act will set the conditions for the EU to become a global trendsetter is yet to be determined. There is, however, an increasing consensus amongst commentators for regulations that, like the AI Act, aim at setting a common level playing field, allowing operators from different jurisdictions to exploit new technologies with a human-centric approach. Contact us on helpdesk at gdprweeklyshow.com. The GDPR Weekly Show is an insurity production. Until next time, bye-bye.